like it in the evening, you know, go and have a look at what's the code that we that we, we shipped today yeah, and what did cool. we do? And I love cool. that. So like I say, I live at the intersection of business and engineering and I love both immensely and I just can't imagine not doing that. So um, I just, yeah, overall really enjoy everything we're doing. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and today we're with John Daniel Trask from Raygun. Welcome along, JD. Appreciate being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great great to have you uh, here in Auckland. You're based in Wellington, so mm-hmm. nice you're uh, able to be in town and to, to give us some time. Beautiful day, eh? <laughs> it is nice out there. Now, we haven't really talked much about Raygun in the past, yet you're, you know, you're a real success story within the New Zealand technology and, and startup uh, world. So I'm kind of, you know, really excited to, to <laughs> sit down and have this chat and to really, uh, you know, learn about your story. Before we jump in, of course, a big thank you to our show partners, uh, to 1NZ, 2 Degrees, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology. Where should we start? Maybe, you know, just sort of a bit of background in terms of, you know, did you grow up in Wellington? <clears throat> What's, you know, and how how did you get into this big wide world of tech? Yeah, no, I, I actually was born outside of Palmerston North um, and uh, grew up there until I moved to Wellington the day before I started at a company called Intigen down there yeah, uh, in their yeah. grad developer program. Um, but I started programming when I was about eight or nine years old. Um, and uh, I like to say to people it always makes you sound like you were some like really clever kid and it was like no I I just you know lived quite far from Palmerston North really and had nothing else to do and we bought a computer and so uh, I learned a little bit of basic and um, I just I fell in love at that point Uh, I I always described it as feeling like programming was like discovering a, a box of Lego with an infinite number of pieces where the only limitation was my ability to think of how to solve a problem. You know, uh, if it seemed impossible, it just wasn't thinking hard enough. Love it. Um, and so I really fell in love uh, with that. I loved the builder mentality, creating of things. Um, and so I pretty quickly uh, decided that I wanted to build software businesses when I was uh, growing up. You know, I still, still, one day I'll be a growing up. Cool. Um, <laughs> just before we dive into that, there'll be some people are curious and wondering <laughs> what was what was that first uh, computer you had? What was your first technology? Yeah, uh, so it was a four eight six SX twenty five with a eight megabytes of of RAM and a two hundred and thirteen megabyte hard drive, and um, we did have a CD ROM drive, which was a, a two speed at the time. Uh, it was a Philips branded one and I think it cost $2,000 as part of the cost of the overall computer. Wow. Um, and fortunately, my father has always had this um, view uh, that I think I've got from him that is o- basically always adopt new technology. He, he kind of said to me one point years ago, he said, you know, well, you know, it's when you stop learning stuff, you know, that's that's when it's kind of all over, you know. And so um, even though he's, he's, you know, quite quite old now, if he's watching this, he'll be annoyed I said that. But uh, at the same time, um, you know, he's still learning, you know, it's still trying new things. So we got this computer and, and it was it was a great advancement to, to be able to play with it. We were, I did have access to an Apple IIe at uh, Intermediate. Um, so a 486 SX25 was like God mode computer compared yeah. to that thing. Yeah, you know? so yeah. it was really cool. 
Okay. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, just, no, no. Just, and it also ha- sets the scene for, you know, for those of us that are a little bit older in terms of, you know, what what era you were, uh, yep. you know, you were you were getting involved in uh, in technology. Yep, yeah. I, there's a lot of people <laughs> where it's like a 486, yeah, you know. <laughs> I bought this book actually a while ago. It's called the uh, Computer Graphics um Black Book, uh, and it was written by this guy that worked at id Software uh, around the time that they were building Quake in the 90s, and it, yep. it goes into different assembly code and optimizing for graphics. And my favorite part of the book is you, you open it up at the introduction, and it says, well, in the age of high-performance 486s and Pentiums, is performance optimization even still necessary? You know, and you're like, oh, boy, is decades <laughs> later and, it, and it's still a challenge, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I fell yeah. in love at that age. I, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll speed it up a little bit, but sold a bit of commercial software through high school, um, built a PC repair company as well as an online retailer through through university, Um and then applied for one job, which was at Intigen. Um And I thought, if Intigen hires me, I'll go and learn what a real company does. And if they don't, I'm just going to build up these businesses that I'd sort of started building already. Uh, very, very fortunately, they hired me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one of the small things, you know, when I was doing the PC repair thing, I think I was charging $35 an hour to drive around, you know, the Manawatu fixing people's computers. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I went there and I was like, wait, you're billing me out at $150 an hour? You know, it was like, oh, okay, I have a, a child's understanding of, of value here. Yes. Uh, you know, learned a lot. And um, very fortunately, uh, you know, a bunch of great personalities in that business. Uh, one of them in p- particular um, stood out, which was Wayne Forgerson, who is, uh, was one of the, the directors of the company. Um, and I also met a, a person, Jeremy Boyd, or JB, and, and obviously him and I started uh, our early business Mindscape together. Um, but Wayne um, really worked quite closely with me, even though I was a, a grad, and sort of I worked on a lot of projects with him. Um, and I don't know if he realized quite how much I was sort of taking and mentoring about the bigger picture of business and how we think about customers and how do we do sales and delivery mm-hmm. and all of that. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot uh, there. Um, in that time. So I worked there for about three years. I always wanted to build a business though, and I I never shied away from telling them this. Um, I think it probably worked because effectively the three founding sort of members were still in the business. And I think, you know, founder to founder, you're like, "Mm, yeah, I kind of get that bug, you know. Um, And so I did, I left in 2007 to start Mindscape uh, with, with Jeremy. Um, and that was, yeah, what's that, 17 what, odd years ago now? Uh, yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. So we built yeah. a, a range of different companies, different startups, um, various different things. Yeah. Yep. And so what were those initial things that you that you built before before you got onto Raygun? So we actually built, I think, 11 products before we built the Raygun product. Mm-hmm. And we bootstrapped the business initially. So we there was actually a third founder as well, um, Andrew. He, he didn't last, I don't think, more than a year. Um, and uh, so we put in 10K each with the agreement that we were also going to bring in our own laptops. Um, so we weren't going to buy any hardware with that seed capital. We rented the cheapest office we could find, which was $500 a month, uh, and it was above a drug and alcohol rehab clinic. Um, I realize listeners can't see the size of this room, but this is about twice the size of the office space. (laughs) Um, And we were super frugal. But what really helped us out uh, was um, 
we were we were reasonably well known in the New Zealand market for being very capable engineers. Yes. And in particular, Jeremy, uh, who's a little bit older than me, really established quite the reputation, particularly in the Microsoft community. And so, um, you know, huge, huge shout out to a range of people at Microsoft New Zealand, um, like Sean Rain and uh, Nigel Parker and Daryl Burling. They all uh, helped us. We're on day one of starting the company. Uh, we got a, a quarter of a million dollar contract from Microsoft New Zealand to build a web app um, that would be used as uh, demoware for developers around the world to understand how to build high performance web applications um, and scale them. Um, and so that was a huge, huge benefit to us really in the starting capital. Uh, but that all came down to that relationship that had been built there prior, like I say, particularly between Jeremy and the folks at Microsoft. He'd helped them get uh, with the engagement around user groups and all of that. You, you probably remember that time where it was really rich time in yeah, the tech sector. Yeah. Um, and so that helped us a bunch. Then we started building our own products, um, and those were things that were very nerdy. They were like data access products. Um, our first one was called Lightspeed. And uh, in the interest of a, a story here, we built this thing, um, and it was an object relational mapper for .NET. There wasn't really any out there. There was a couple of open source ones. And then Microsoft built some uh, entity framework and linked to SQL. And then as a little bit of extra kind of salt in the wound, I mentioned Andrew earlier. Uh, Andrew had gone to work at Microsoft on their object relational mapper technologies. So he was now okay. in effect in competition with us. And the positive thing was is that Microsoft then proceeded to kill one of their object relational mappers, which was linked to SQL, which in my opinion was the good one. Uh, they kept Entity Framework, which was a dog, uh, to the point where I used to joke that maybe Andrew was our Trojan horse. Uh, <laughs> but what helped there was actually that Microsoft Worldwide educated the .NET market on object relational mappers. You know, And so that's one of the things I say to people, like a giant company coming into your patch may seem threatening, and it absolutely can be, but if they're going to educate the entire market on the value of what you're doing, um, you know, that is actually can have a, a lot of um, side benefits. Mm. And so what happened was is a lot of people started building on things like EF, uh, Entity Framework, and then they'd realize that the performance sucked. And so they'd go looking for something that would make it better. And we were selling a product that was largely compatible uh, or at least small amount of work to shift over, but performed super well. Right. Uh, and so that really uh, helped us. We then proceeded to build a range of other things. We even built stuff for Windows Phone. Uh, you know, we, we've definitely had some failures in that set, but we, we had a range of products that we were selling. We also did joint ventures where we would do a discount development rate but take equity in the company that was working with us. Okay. And the most famous one of that in New Zealand is uh, giveadlittle.co.nz. So we built we built that. Um, and Natalie Whitaker was the, the CEO of that business. And that was sold to Spark in 2012. Um, I'm still really proud of the fact that that business has generated hundreds of millions of dollars of um, philanthropy to needy Kiwi causes. Yes, uh, so really so. awesome to be involved in that. Yeah. Um, we also built a range of other companies across business valuation, um, email mining, and a few things. To be very clear, some of these things were you know sold for a, a sandwich. You know they weren't <laughs> they weren't all spectacular successes. And then. Um, in 2012, I think it was, uh, yeah, we got a little bit of co-funding from Callahan around a project grant to build something new. And I decided with Jeremy that we would build a error reporting product. So 
Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, left it pretty late in the piece here to say, what is yeah. Evan Rayner? Yeah. <laughs> you can think of it as the black box flight recorder for your software. So yeah. when stuff breaks, it's going to provide enough context and information back to the developers that they can fix it quickly. Okay. Um, and when I joined Intigen, one of the things that stood out to me from Jeremy Boyd was that he was obviously a phenomenal engineer. And I was trying to, I, I had all the arrogance of a kid who had been coding for 10 years at this point. You know, I'm like, how am I not the best person here at this? You know, this guy's awesome. I've got to beat him, you know. And so um, I wanted to learn all the lessons. And one of the things that I noticed was that he would always set up his uh, code to send him an email if there was an unhandled fault. And this was back in 2004. Um, and there were all sorts of problems with this because this was when you had like 10 megabyte inboxes and an error in a loop could saturate your whole inbox in like three seconds. You yes, know, there was yeah. no workflow tools, no sharing, no anything. And, um, and so we decided we'd build this product that effectively created that same sort of environment but gave workflow tools, team management, centralized view, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so we launched that in early 2013 under the name of Raygun. At the time, it was a product of Mindscape. It was just one in the in yes. the box, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, it was our first SaaS product, though. Uh, so I, <laughs> I love not starting the month at $0. <laughs> so up until this point, you know, every single month would start and you'd be like, boy, I hope some people come and buy Lightspeed off us this month or our WPF tools. Uh, but starting the month and going, okay, well, revenue is going to be at this level and hopefully we can add more um, was a much, much more um, enjoyable way to run a business. Yeah, it uh, seemed to be quite <clears throat> transformational. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to that point of uh, being 17, 18 years now, I think I'd be bald if I hadn't had the, uh, <laughs> the recurring, recurring revenue, revenue at some point in month. there. Yeah. 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 And that product for that first year, we didn't really do a whole lot with it. It was mm -hmm. in market, it was mm -hmm. there. Um, and then we started getting uh, a lot more organic interest, um, including takeover offers for the company that obviously ultimately we didn't do. But that was what really caused Jeremy and I to think, like, there's something quite different with this. You know, we weren't getting phone calls from from the types of people we were on data access technologies. Um, yeah, and so we kind of took it from there. Raygun now is actually its own sort of stable of products around the idea of uh, the, the effectively it's customer experience through the dev team. So any errors, what's the performance, their load time, that sort of stuff. And where is that load time going so that you can try and improve it? That's pretty cool. So obviously in those, those early days, uh, I'm picking there wasn't there wasn't really a whole lot out there in terms of other people trying to do the same sort of thing that you were doing. But as time goes on, it tends to be if you've got something that's a bit of a winner, yep. uh, you know, more more people come into the space and, you know, we'll be crossing swords with you in one, one way or another. Yep. How, you know, have you have you dealt with that? What's that kind of, you know, look like over the yeah. over the years? Um, well, a big part uh, for us has been how to diversify the overall offering. Um, so without naming names uh, across the broader category, We've had a couple of offers to acquire the company so that we would go in and run the combined entity of maybe bolting on a competitor in crash reporting. Mm, um, mm, and the conversations that I've had with some of the owners of those businesses, whether they were founding set or you know maybe PE or, or whatnot at that point, um, 
has generally been that it was a mistake to not broaden out of a singular category. Mm. Um, and mm. I think what you know we've seen a little bit of this more recently in the current economic environment around people wanting to consolidate vendors. You know, go to the vendor that will tell you sell you ten things rather than having ten vendors selling you one thing. Yeah, yeah. And I would say Raygun's probably um, in the middle of that transformation mm. at the moment, yeah. and that we have yeah. three products. But if you go and look at some of the major players out there like a new relic or a data dog you know they have like 25 products um and so we're looking at ways that we might expand or broaden and add more complements to the set because mm -hmm. the more you can bring that data together the more holistic the picture becomes yeah yep. so we we look at it um in that sense the other area that's quite a differentiator for raygun versus almost every competitor is we're not heavily vc backed so we are not sitting here going, gosh, I hope the investors write us another check this year so that we can keep operating. Um, no, we, we operate as a proper business and we make money, um, you know, and we reinvest that uh, money. So what I've seen, for example, you, you, you'll know this as, as well as anybody, but you've got a lot of companies that raise a lot of money in, say, 2021 that are now finding out they're not worth a fraction of what they raised at last time and they're in a bad place. You've got the companies that exploded with COVID uh, growth, you know, and uh, that growth disappeared. Now, that's just a fact of life. But, mm, you know, if mm. you had massively amplified the value of your company during that time with investors, now you've got a big problem on your hands. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of issues that are going on out there where I've, I've found that just building a sustainable business um, has, has probably been the right move because we've seen a handful of competitors kind of turn up, get quickly acquired, disappear and never get spoken of again and you know there's good on them you know like i'm yeah. never going to begrudge a person having an exit and and, yeah. and getting their payday but you know one of the realizations i've had in recent years is it's like okay well if you sold the company you get the money you spend six months or so chilling out you work out you need the capital to do some work for you so you invest it to get a return then you decide you're still bored, so you want something to do. Then you realize you're totally unemployable, so you need to kind of have your own thing. Yes. So you start this new thing where you buy something, you know, and now you're operating a business again. And I was like, well, wouldn't it just be better to just keep operating <laughs> businesses and skip this malarkey in the middle? Yeah, um, yep, so yep. anyway, uh, that's kind of where we've, where we've uh, ended up. Um, but we still get opportunities, but it really just comes down to if the timing would be right and the right outcome there for um, where it would go. Because, as I say, quite honestly, a lot of the time things get acquired, they, they just disappear. You know, mm. I'm never happy when we're using a product and they send you the announcement that they've been acquired. <laughs> yeah, it's often uh, not a good sign, yeah, but, no. yeah, yep. there, are, there are always exceptions, exceptions to the rule. Yep. So, you know, over that time, started out, what two three people in a, in a in a small small space? Yep. What does the business look like now? Where where are your customers? And you yep. know, what's the whole the the makeup look like? Well, you'll be pleased to know we're no longer above the drug and alcohol rehab. <laughs> <laughs> so we are a little bit more distributed. We were more distributed pre-COVID. So company headcount, including contractors, typically bounces between sort of forty to fifty people. Mm. Um, we've got. Uh, my uh, co-founder and COO, she's in North Carolina. Um, she's been out there this year. She moved back over there because we we did consolidate back to New Zealand quite heavily mm. through COVID mm. times. 
Um, we've got people, in, a person in Taiwan, UK, a little bit out there, and we're just really going back out there again. We're still very heavily based in Wellington at the moment, but our customer base is very global. Mm. So we have, um, it's increased since this, but it's about 50% of our customers in the, the US, about 30% across Europe. Uh, I think it's 8% in New Zealand. Um, and, and that's a bit of an outlier, yeah, um, yeah. you know, in there. But it's a very diversified customer base. And that has also been an element of adding resilience to our business. So, for example, when COVID hit, you know, we certainly saw some customers get really hurt by COVID. They might have been mm. the tourism or airline yeah. operators, those yeah. folks. And then we saw other customers that were, say, in streaming or gaming absolutely explode, you know. And so that horizontal nature of our of our customer base and the fact that it's quite broad is actually a strength to the business. Mm. Mm. Yep. How many customers do you have or what other kind of things yep. can you share? And, and you yep. know, I know that uh, you probably can't tell us everything <laughs> if I were to ask you, uh, you know, your recurring revenue numbers and all that sort of stuff. You know, you, I always you know, like I'm sure say. there's always a little bit more you can share. So. Yeah, no, no. Well, the big, the big one for us is normally um, people are surprised on the data volumes that we process. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I'd be unless it's maybe like the digital assets that maybe Weta works on. I would be I would be probably fairly surprised if there's Kiwi companies necessarily dealing with the volumes that we we process through our platform. Um, and so, in terms of customers, there's there's thousands of organisations um, using the products across. You know, probably about a hundred and fifty thousand engineers across those accounts. Wow. Um, and. We have a model which is very much self-serve, meaning customers come, they try the product. If it doesn't suck, they give us a credit card, you know, and then they pay. We've experimented a few times with trying to build out sales teams. Mm. Um, it hasn't, I mean, it didn't not work, but it hasn't worked well enough to make it worthwhile. And, and the go-to-market to the engineering teams doesn't really work so well with it for our business. Um and so we are quite incentivized to ensure that the product experience is good enough to make sure people will convert. And so one uh, metric is that uh, one in five people who send data to Raygun will become a paying customer. Um, and so we, we, we're pretty proud of that, that it must provide some value. Mm. You know? mm. um, and then from in terms of the larger customers, you know, um, I'll start with a known brand, but like Domino's Pizza, Globally, they run their online ordering platform, uses Raygun for any fault reporting. And what's really cool about organizations like that is that we work quite closely with them uh, to identify new ways to improve the customer experience. Mm. Like I say, interestingly enough, while some people see us as an engineering tool or a technology tool, it really is about building better customer experiences. Um, and so I love working with Domino's on some of their ideas of how to take, say, a fault in an online order, but leverage Raygun to perhaps contact the store that was going to deliver the pizza. And if something went wrong, let the store contact the individual. Oh, and that's okay. that sort of higher level thinking yeah. that I, I admire in them. But then through to our largest uh, sort of experience was uh, both with crash reporting, but we have our real user monitoring or RUM product and what that does is that measures the user's actual load time experience, you know, how long did things take. And one of our customers is HBO. And so for the finale of Game of Thrones, uh, we peaked at tracking 87 million concurrent viewers of that show at concurrently, wow. right, all going through our platform. We didn't lose <laughs> a single piece of data. Yeah. And keep in mind, that's not errors. That's like 
sending data every few seconds about what's loading, how's the buffering going and all of yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so while our pricing and the positioning is all like, hey, you can come on and uh, even as a hobby developer if you wanted, uh, the technology behind the scenes can scale to the largest organizations on earth. Um, and so that's something that's really important about Raygun um, is, you know, talking about headcount, I'm a huge believer that product companies, unless it's in your actual sales function, should not be scaling on headcount the way most of us in the industry do. I'm, I want to kind of keep the headcount relatively capped. I want us to scale on the impact of the individuals that work in the business and the impact of the software. And so one of my, you know, I'm probably giving this away since we're about to bring in a, a handful of interns through the summer, but you know, one of my party tricks is usually to get one of the engineers to, to work in their internship on uh, what we call our Raygun for JS file, which is our JavaScript SDK. You know, and they always jump in and they'll add a feature or look and fix a bug deploy it, you know, cool. And then you kind of go and casually say, did you know that that file gets loaded 1.2 billion times every month onto people's machines? And they're like, you know, what? And it's like, you know, this might be one of the earliest things they've done. Obviously, we have quality control checks mm -hmm. in the process. Yeah. But that idea that you don't come to Raygun to ship stuff that no one's ever going to use, you know. Um, we want to optimize for the people that want to have that sort of level of impact and, and, and control in the world. That's cool. And so how do you find the right sort of people to join your team so you can have this this tight team that's yep. delivering a, a great result for Raygun yep. and, and, and for your clients? Well, a big part of that is highlighting the, the nature of the work. The work we do here is quite unique. So, for example, we recently, uh, last year actually, we hired the deputy um, head of the School of Engineering from Waikato University. This is a person with patents in the category of, you know, garbage collection within the JVM. You know, they've done stuff with IBM. You know, these are quite specialised and deep skills. And the more people like that that we bring into our business, the more uh, it attracts other high performers, which is the other side of the coin, which, you know, we chat chatted about earlier, which is I also like to try and alienate the people that I don't want to work at Raygun by using Twitter. Um, so you know, <laughs> I'll put my opinions out there and people sometimes get really mad and I'm like, great, I don't want you to come and work with Raygun. <laughs> you know, like, I want the people that want to work with other high performers and really, really want to like create those outsized outcomes. And unfortunately, some people think that that means, you know, hours and hours is not impact in a product business. You know, that's really antiquated thinking. Um, it's about getting the, the smartest people uh, you know, the ones that are going to think a whole lot about the problems they're solving and be really passionate about those problems yep. um, gets in there. And and so that's important. Similarly, as a bit of a story, uh, back years ago, we, we were, we've been a very, very long-term supporter of the Summer of Tech program. And I went along to this talk, uh, it was the speed dating night where businesses could get up and do a quick quick chat, yep. you know, and I listened to one company got up and said, hey, you know, come and work at XYZ, you know, we have pool table and, you know, we, we do all this sort of stuff. And then the next one sort of got up and said, hey, well, we have a disco ball in our office, you know, <laughs> and all of this. And um, then the next one was like, we have a slide, you know. <laughs> and I was fortunately the last speaker, you yep. know, and yep. I just got up and I said, we don't have a slide, we don't have a disco ball, we don't have a foosball table, but what we have is really hard scaling problems to come and solve. And I'll never forget the student that came up to us afterwards, he said, I, I really appreciated you saying that. He said, 
I've never understood why all these companies think we went to university to get a degree in computer science to come and play foosball or go <laughs> on a slide. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't get it. It's like if the company is not actually selling you on the work, you should be asking yourself why they're not selling you on the work. It's probably pretty boring and uninteresting, you know, yeah, so they're trying yeah. to distract you with a slide. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's great. And, um, yeah, for those that are on Twitter or, or x.com as it is now and they're curious about your tweets or, or, or posts uh yep. was it trask jd is that yeah. your uh so feel free to have a uh, yeah. have a little bit of a look and uh, a follow if you uh, if, if, you, <laughs> if you happen to like what jd's talking about now there's always the big challenges in you know in any business especially with a startup where you're starting out with limited funds, which, as you mentioned, you bootstrapped, yep. you basically funded funded things yourselves. Uh, you had to, you know, you had to earn every dollar to be able to grow and and, and scale and so on. Um, other than you've had some some investment along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, maybe we can just drill into that a little bit in terms of, you know, when when did you bring you know, a little bit of external investment on and what did that look like and, you know, why have you stopped in terms of, you know, need, needing to get further further investment? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so we didn't raise any capital until 2014. Um, so going back to that ray gun story, we built it in 2012. We launched it in 2013. Late 2013, we start getting acquisition offers. Completely straight up obviously we weren't making that much revenue off this product yet and that was a reason we didn't do any transaction was to sort of acknowledge you know this <laughs> unless your multiple is ridiculous we're not yeah. going to be selling for the the, the the price of a pizza um, and so acknowledging that we felt look there's something kind of a bit unique here uh, we went out and we raised some capital um, some people would call it a friends and family round but what was interesting to me was that because we'd built these joint ventures earlier on, it wasn't like friends and family like I rang up my uncle. It was actually people that we had built some of those businesses with previously who we had been engaged with and they came in with us. And it was this awesome opportunity to kind of just go the other way. And what's really cool about that is that a lot of them are also business operators as well. And so I'm not necessarily having to... um, uh, manage investors who are looking for the payday tomorrow. Uh, obviously, we all want a payday. That's the point of it. Um, but they're very understanding of the challenges of business. Um, and so we went out. We did this this raise. We raised, uh, I think it was 1.3 million Kiwi at the time. Um, we, we valued the business as you have to. Um, but we largely cautioned on one point, which was all of the other stuff we'd done pre-Raygun, even though it's revenue generating, we're going to value that at zero. The reason we valued that at zero was because we were planning to be all in on Raygun. And even though there was years of generating revenue off those older products, uh, we decided to sunset those brands and those those things um, in there. Out of that funding round, um, I can't quite remember if this... Uh, exactly how it landed but the the first sort of equal largest investors in that round was um uh, punakaiki in round one punakaiki fund and uh my wife and i set up a holding company to invest in our own round and 
I sometimes get that comment from people, like, how do you avoid dilution? I'm like, well, it helps if you invest in your own rounds. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, and so that helped. And then we did a top-up sort of round in 2016 from the majority being the same investors that came in in 2014. Yep. Um, but we've, we've and, and that, that top-up round, I think, brought us to it was about another million dollars. We were doing an expansion into the United States at the time. And so we were already selling well into the United States, but we wanted to go and invest in, in, in putting boots on the ground and seeing how that would go. So yep. we did that. But generally speaking, we reinvest any sort of free cash flow back into the growth of the company um, overall. So that's been another way that we've avoided it. But that's led to about 85%, maybe a little bit more of the company being held by insiders within it still today. Oh, that's good. Uh, good position to be in. Well, one of the reasons I say we haven't, you know, diluted down more is that I, I'm, I don't think I'm very good at capital raising. So I've had the <laughs> the unfortunate side effect is I have to own a lot of the business. Uh, but it's a good side effect if you can get there. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah I, I mean, one of the things I would challenge, just I guess, to some listeners, is I, I worry that until a couple of years ago, just about everybody thought, you know, you go and raise money to build a software company. The reality is. Building software is an extremely low capital uh, cost uh, endeavor at the very beginning, where ideally you go and put that time in yourself. Paying for software developers is eye-wateringly expensive, right? And that's something I've never quite really understood, is why we don't see more people taking earlier stage things where they have the skills to build further before they, you know, when somebody comes and tries to pitch me, and, and I have invested in a range of companies, but I'm not going to invest in something that, like literally hasn't even started to be built yet. You know, if we really are at the idea stage, there's nothing to show. And I think, you know, the barriers have never been lower. If we briefly chat about uh, ChatGPT, you know, I find this fascinating because my, my wife said to me one day, she's like, you know, why don't, why don't you build this thing? I was like, why don't you build it? <laughs> it's like, you just ask ChatGPT how to do it now. Because yeah. one of the things when we had our AI week at Raygun, um, we got everybody in the company to do our software development uh, test. And so suddenly when you have like the designers and the customer success folks and the finance people saying, hang on, I can do Raygun's coding test, you know, and I'm not a coder. Like the barriers to actually doing things have largely dissolved here. Um, and that's one of the things I just challenge anybody who starts thinking, I have to go raise some money. I have to dilute the, the thing before I've really done anything. I'm like, no, you want to take it as not as far as possible because you may miss opportunity, but sure. you can take it a lot further uh, before you start talking about whether it's even investment grade um, business. You know, mm -hmm. it simply might not be. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack and we, we could delve <laughs> into there. And, um, but but you did just talk about um, you know generative AI. Yeah. It, it plays a role, obviously. You know. Yeah, right across probably you know every every sector. But from a, a software perspective, what's your what's your viewpoint on how useful it is today, and and how you expect that to uh, you know change over the years ahead? Yeah, well, today I sort of describe it as an Iron Man suit. So it's about empowering an individual to create more than if they were without it. Mm. Um, but it's not currently really being used to be a force multiplier for a group. You know, we're not crossing mm. boundaries yet. Uh, there's obviously issues around, you know, hallucination, um, these things aren't quite right, blah, 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 you know. Um, 
I'm ex I would paint myself in the extremely bullish corner of AI um, and you know not wanting to cast aspersions here uh, but I feel like you and I were both around for the internet arriving and uh, <laughs> I kind of I see a lot of people making analogies to the iPhone and I think that's the wrong analogy to make. I make it more back to the internet's arrival when I think AI technologies are going to be far more impactful, although I think they needed the internet to be really useful. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I've had some people sort of say, oh, you know, the grift has just moved from cryptocurrency to AI. And I'm like, no, nah, I disagree with that. Um, and part of the reason I disagree with that is because, you know, when it was sort of 1996 and we were using the internet, you know, and your JPEG was downloading like this rate, you know, it took you like two minutes of a squealing modem to connect. You couldn't use your phone if you were on the internet. You know, all you of these limitations. The pixels flashing up in front yeah. of you. But even normal people were willing to go through that pain because it was so impactful. Contrast and compare that to, say, crypto. They oh. weren't. Only the people who were more or less on the grift or very technically capable, you know, were doing anything with it. It wasn't approachable. It, the pain wasn't, the juice was not worth the squeeze mm. uh, fundamentally. Mm. Mm. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is AI is sort of in the same camp as the internet where it's like, yeah, it's not perfect. And yeah, it's kind of expensive. And yeah, 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 and all these things, but we're all going to use it because we can see that potential in there. And I'm really excited about where this can go. Because I think people sometimes are a little over-indexing on breakthrough technology outcomes versus uh, taking what we already have and just marginally improving it. And what I mean by that is take hallucinations. You could absolutely say our job is to go and figure out a way to ensure no hallucinations ever occur. Or you could run the same question through the AI like 10 times with different temperature values and then give it back to the AI and get it to rank them and basically start building in these error correction sort yeah, of cycles absolutely. within the current domain. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's entirely possible. The biggest challenge at the moment, though, is the rate of improvement that's occurring. Um, and so you learn one thing today and three days later, somebody's got a better version of it. Um, and so that's proving... I think to be the biggest challenge at the moment is the the goalposts are moving so quickly, um, mm. but it's a super exciting time. There's so much opportunity uh, here. Um, I'm I'm more excited about the broader uh, impacts around sort of operationalizing and, and improving things across teams and across groups rather than just the purely singular. Hey, it helped me do this. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think that's going to be the, the transformational stage. And I think a lot of people are heads down at the moment building that. We're not seeing a lot of it uh, yet. Um, I, I had somebody make the, the analogy to me the other day. Remember when the app store launched on the iPhone and we had all these gimmicky little apps yeah, and they yeah, were like yeah. the fart app, you know, like yeah, tap yeah. the button, my phone yeah. farts and you have yeah, a giggle. couldn't do that yesterday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel like we're kind of in that phase of AI right now. Like people yeah. are building lots of stuff on top of these open AI stuff, but yeah. a lot of them are quite gimmicky. But yeah. I'm talking to a lot of founders who are building other companies that are like, hey, I'm automating sales team coaching, you know, hey, I'm building these sorts of things. I think those technologies are going to be coming to market a bit more around the end of the year and, mm. and, and early mm. 2024. And I think that's going to be the, the the real start of kind of going, hey, hey, this really changes how we build our businesses. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, I think that that will be it'll be really exciting to see what uh, you know what things do come through and and how they you know apply in a, yeah. in a range of different areas and. 
how much of that's coming out of New Zealand, of course, is, is always of interest. Yep. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And we, and we yeah. have some really cool companies here. Like one of the things I found really quite um, surprising when, when I started on my product company journey was just how many amazing product companies there are here. But it makes almost no sense for any of them to market here. So you don't even know they're here. Mm. Like mm. Uh, there was a, there's a company, Maxava, right? Uh, they are quite dominant in the field of disaster recovery for IBMI servers. That's right. Yeah. They're based in Wellington. I'd never heard of them, uh, you know, and back Auckland, in the, I think Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, yeah. And mm. I, was, I was like, this is not a name that I would hear most Kiwis even know that there was yeah. a Kiwi company doing so well. And like, you know, I think, I don't know if it's private, but like some of the world's major yeah. companies are relying on this company if disaster strikes their business. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's yeah. cool. I love yeah. that. And yeah. I think we need yeah. to get more of that into New Zealand. Yeah. You know, just being yeah. like, let's be proud and build. I agree. I agree. Um, uh, that's good. So talking about the the, the tough times, what... Uh, <laughs> What stories can you can you share from the trenches, JD? I was about to say, you know, uh, if it can happen, I've seen it, but uh, I realise that's jinxing myself for the rest of today. Um, you know, like uh, we've touched a bit on like having a co-founder leave. Um, that was Andrew at the start. I had Jeremy had to leave the business last year for health reasons. And that was quite sudden and and um, and, a, and a pretty big deal. We've had. You know, challenges like everybody with with some staff at times. You know, we've had the the person that builds an entire company while pretending to work for you, sort of things, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, you see everything. I mean, that's you know, <laughs> at the risk of causing controversy here. You know, this goes back to those Twitter comments a wee bit that we were talking about. It's like, you can tell the people that have never really been responsible for a lot of people because <laughs> mm. they have no idea, mm. and it's not mm. that people are necessarily inherently bad as much as actually keeping everybody aligned is a really, really hard job to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's usually my day-to-day -day more stuff is like, how do I ensure, you know, things are going well? Um, I'm just trying to think of like any, oh, I mean, I'll give you one example, just like a headache. Uh, so we moved to, the, to Seattle, you know, uh, we lived there for three years building out the team up there. And I uh, got EY to do our my personal taxes. You know, your taxes are complicated when you're in the US and New Zealand. Yeah. And um, we get this phone call on like the weekend up there, and they're like, "Oh, hey, we've we realise we've made a mistake with your uh, with your with your taxes." And I'm like, "Well, that's not what I want to hear." And it's like, "Yeah, um, you know, we didn't realise you owned a business." And I was like, "Well." You literally only know me because <laughs> you do my businesses, you know, financials here. And I, oh, the American team didn't know. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So what's the deal? And they're like, well, we have this problem that we always extend the filing date to the last day possible. And we're now the day before the last day possible. And I was like, okay. And they're like, yeah. And America has this thing that if you own more than 10% of a business, you have to file the full company reports, P&L, balance sheet, like the, the whole banana, uh, change to US GAAP accounting format and set to a financial year that matches the standard US one, which is 1 January to 31 December, which is not the New Zealand one. And you have to do that for every entity that you own more than 10% of, of which I own eight. 
And I'm like, Ouch. so this is like due tomorrow. <laughs> You've done none of them. <laughs> like, didn't know about it. Like that's the sort of stuff where you just kind of go, oh, okay. And so that's where I think resilience is just so, so important in being a, a business leader. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I have sat there and gave you one example there, but things come up all the time. And uh, I, I remember talking briefly to a friend of mine. She runs a business in, in Wellington. And she was having a hard time. And I said, look, the, the best analogy I can give for how I talk to myself when I'm going through times like that is if you've seen the uh, any of the Marvel movies with Captain America, right, and he's got you know blood coming out of his mouth, his eyes on, and he gets back up and he's like, I, I could do this all day. You know, it's like <laughs> that's kind of the mentality you have to have because no one else is going to keep getting up, you know. And so you just got to keep going, okay, you do have to shift your mindset to every problem is not, you know, fatal, you know, yeah. what am I going to yeah. do here? And yep. um, I'm going to be honest, it's, it's a huge part of working on yourself. It's not letting that stuff get to you. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, you know, last year was quite a challenging year. Um, that was with Jeremy um, mm. needing mm. to leave. Mm. Uh, we still get on great, by the way, like, and he's doing well, so that's fantastic. But, you know, a mutual friend of mine is, uh, is Josh Robb, you know, and yep. he said to me, he's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really worried. Like, how are you, how are you kind of getting on with these things? Uh, and I said, like, uh, honestly, it is hard. But there is a part of me, and this is the little voice in the back of my mind, just says, you're going to win eventually. You know, like, just, just keep going. And I think that is just such an important thing to sort of ingrain in oneself is this, this belief, you know, yeah. the drive. So I mean that's it's you know you can't yeah you can't operate um, and lead a business without you know having that sort of you know toughness to to go on. How do you get on with helping your team? Because we've seen all sorts of ups and downs, and you know with COVID and economy and and yeah. you know individually across a team, you're going to have people dealing with all sorts of things in their personal lives and health and 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 so on. Um, what do you do to sort of, you know, encourage your team to be resilient and how do you work through those sorts of things? Any, any particular tips you can, you can share? Well, firstly, like the people side of business is the hard part of business. Um, and that's not to say people are hard. It's just, as you say, there's, there's so much diversity in what's going on in people's lives and how they're feeling and all of that sort of stuff. So to like give an example, when COVID hit, Firstly, Raygun did not qualify for uh, government assistance payment there, so we never drew on that. But I cut the work week, uh, the work day by two hours for everybody in the company, so effectively made it a six-hour day. Uh, we did not adjust salaries at all through that time. Raygun actually has phenomenally, in my opinion, phenomenally good diversity stats. Uh, so every single team except for uh, engineering has like more women than men. There's a lot of people with children there. You know, mm -hmm. we have a very family-friendly environment. There's plenty of Lego in the office. We encourage people to say, "Bring your kids in." You know, That's like cool. end of the yeah. day, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, and so we looked after our people that way, um, and that included, you know, making sure that I, I have a young son. He's four and a half now, but he just turned one when COVID hit. You know, and it yeah. was, "Hey, I'm going to be doing the." Um, you know, the normal meetings with my son sitting on my, my knee, you know. I actually think that was one of the real highlights. Uh, you know, obviously COVID overall sucked. But, you know, one thing was 
you know, there's all that talk of bring your whole self to work, and I, mm. I always love the joke where it's like, not that part of it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, more to the point was it's like children as an example. It's like that is part of your life. It's obviously yeah. the most important part of your life, yes. you know, um, and the idea that you try to hide that from work to me seems really odd. Um, bringing all of your life problems to work, please don't do that. But like children, all that sort of stuff, that's a very real sort of, that's just part of the person. That is yep. the package you get. Um, and so that's something I've always been proud of at Raygun. Even mm. well before I had had my own child was to be mm. supportive of families. Um, that goes back to that point earlier as well, where it's like, I think some people think that um, everything is about the hours and it's not. It's often about the flexibility and the ability to work. Um, mm. We mm. have been... I did bring the engineering team back into the office five days a week, uh, few, about two months ago now, I think, maybe three. Um, and that's worked really, really well. Um, what, I, sort of, what sort of pushback did you, you get with that? Because <clears throat> we've, you know, we follow the, the story sort of globally around people getting pulled back to the office and, you know, some people say, no, I'm, I'm tapping out if I have to be, you yep. know, full-time uh, back in the office. But, yeah, what sort of pushback did you get? Um, there, there, there was uh, some folks that weren't, you know, super excited about this idea. But for the, I would say, I would say, eighty percent of people were actually quite happy with this decision. Mm. Um, I would hope that it doesn't directly lead to anybody leaving. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't comfortable enduring the costs of uh, working remotely. Uh, full-time at least. So examples of that are um, there was a very noticeable drop in knowledge sharing. Mm. You know, there's not just the learn through osmosis of hearing people having conversations. You know, now some techies go, well, I want to sit there with my headphones on. It's like, you know what? The engineer who sits there with the headphones on and doesn't engage with anybody is not actually that valuable. Mm. You know, that is mm. not what we're actually looking for. You know, and so that means that if you don't have that learning going on, you're not elevating your junior team members. Your senior people are all meant to have an element where they are leveling up, raising all boats by by being there. Nobody's setting up a Zoom meeting to have a two-minute conversation, you know, about something like as much as they should. Yeah. Secondly, um, there was also uh, – and I, I realise some people would disagree with this, but – there was a social unraveling sort of occurring. And so one of the things that did occur was that um, after a while of having this in place, I was getting more and more people saying, like highlighting the positives, you know, I'm the camaraderie's up, I'm building better relationships, you know, I'm, I'm feeling better about myself. That would then follow on to situations where... After you return to the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but just by yeah. coming in. I, I'm, yeah. I, my view is uh, that the, the real resistance is much more like the gym. You know, it, it's not going to the gym that you don't want to do. As soon as you put your first foot outside the door with your gym bag and you're ready to go, like you've already – you've crossed the the line there and nobody then comes back from the gym and goes, God, that sucked. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And that was kind of what I, I suspected mm. and what mm. I did see play out was that um, – you know, and I don't, I don't disagree with the folks that kind of went like, oh, I prefer this. And, and that's one of my arguments that a lot of tech companies are making this move, I think, because senior people who should know better have too much of an incentive to not change it back. Because, look, when you're senior and capable and you can put your headphones on and just 
plane through your work? Like, sure, I get it, but that's not the entirety of what you're here for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I challenge folks to come in more. We did experiment with doing days in the office, like three days. But, you know, one of the things, again, this annoys people sometimes when you highlight it, but it's like in New Zealand, if you add up the stat holidays, the sick leave, and the annual leave, you're actually not that far off a four-day work week, right? You then say, okay, we're going to come in three days. And let's say you said Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay, and let's say there's a team of five people. All right. Well, annual leave or stat days or sick leave will take them off those days that they may be in. And then if you're familiar with things like the the birthday paradox, which kind of says a very small number of people can be brought together, you'll be surprised at how quickly you find two people have the same birthday. It's one of these cryptography arguments, which kind of says it's, it's one of those things humans don't intuit this right. And this is the thing. You can very quickly get with three days in the fact that certain colleagues still only see each other like three or four times in a month because mm. once you take out those days where they – they were off on leave and that time they, that other person was sick and all that. You're like, I think you kind of need to start at five and then handle the flexibility of the time. And so I've, I've used the narrative internally with the team that um, a lot of this is really just about changing the default. This is not about saying, hey, forever we have to be in here every single day. This is about getting back to the default as we come here and when there is a necessary reason for that to change, we do it. We don't start with and don't leave the house and when there's a necessary need, I come in. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to shift us back to the pre-COVID default. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's and it's worked that's, so that's a, far. Yeah, it's really, really, really good to um, to get uh, yeah to get your your view on uh, um, you know the reality of how it's worked at Raygun. So, yeah, yeah, and well, of course you've still got other staff that are in other parts of the world. So yeah, they're, they're, this they're, is they're right. Not able to come into you know to the office, and you 100%. still have to deal with yep. those um, you know realities of how you work across time zones and and, and connect. Yeah, you know? and some of the some of the other teams outside of engineering are still mm. working on the three day sort of week model. Um, yeah. I'm sort of wanting to test it by, through engineering, and, and given my background in engineering, um, yeah. um, I'm kind of a bit more over that side of the the business at the moment. Um, it's also Honestly, you just see these people starting to riff off each other's ideas, you know, and start getting something out on the whiteboard and you're like, this this is the magic. You know, this is what, if I could somehow work out how to make that moment go on for, you know, seven and a half hours of every day, like I would be doing that. Why would you then make decisions that decrease the chances of that occurring? Um, And then if I, you know, cite somebody like Steve Jobs where if you've read the book Creativity Inc which was about how literally he designed the offices for Pixar to try to maximize the crossover between teams and um, the the story kind of goes that he, he wanted to put the toilets at the other end so anybody who needed to go to the bathroom would have to walk to the other end of the building I think they reneged on that because of pregnant women <laughs> being like <laughs> but what we found is the same thing. It's like we had a situation. I don't, I don't think they'd mind me citing it, but like our, our head of infrastructure ended up having a conversation with our head of marketing over having lunch where it turned out that the head of infrastructure had the answer to something that the marketing person needed. Now, I can tell you right now, the nature of what that thing was, this would not have come up out of a pure like, hey, I need this. Let me go to the head of infrastructure. Yeah. And so these are the things. These are all of the hidden costs that sort of occur. You know, and I've heard 
every excuse under the sun of why this is not a good idea from people who have a reason to, to support that. Um, and I just come back to people that say, well, I'm not trying to build a company that is designed to suit every single person on planet Earth. I'm looking for the people who share the same spirit, which turns out, you know, probably about 50-odd people, you know, on Earth. I'm trying to build the best environment for those 50 people to create the products for the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people that rely on those products. That's my goal. Perfect. That sound, sounds like you're doing the right thing. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Come back next year and you'll ask me what are my biggest mistakes and I might be talking about this again. <laughs> You've got to try stuff though. Like that's the you thing. You do. You've got to experiment. Yeah. You're, yeah. A, you're a businessman. Yeah. Um, same thing. It's like if you're not trying out ideas, that's that's actually what I love about business is mm. it's like mm. the freedom to, you know, uh, for, for listeners before this kicked off, you know, Paul was going through his process software and saying, oh, I start mucking around with the process. I'm like... Yeah, the, you and me, mate. Like this is the same thing. Like yeah. building, constructing, optimizing. It's yeah. what what really gets us yeah. out of bed. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, we're probably just about out of out of time, and there was a bunch more that would have been <laughs> nice to uh, nice to delve into. Um, any sort of last point? There was I just saw in our um, in our notes you had tweeted something about this. Um, uh, gardening that your team w was doing. Have we got time to delve yeah, into yep, we delve do. into delve into that before we wrap up? Yeah. So this is um, to that point of we've got to try experiments, right? Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I recognised within our business was that we have been delivering software a little bit slower, you know, every few months than we we were a few months earlier. And when I'm Coding, you know, I try to, not that I do a lot of it at work, it's mostly fun now, you know. I, I always say when I'm doing the CEO stuff, like I'm sitting there missing the coding. When yeah. I'm coding, I'm like, I really should be doing that. <laughs> so anyway. Um, but I was looking at the speed of our delivery and I realized like it's nothing to do with the capability of the people. Like at this point, you're approaching a 10-year-old code base. We sell three major products and then, you know, we've talked about the scale and, um, for those of you that aren't software engineers, usually what happens is the more high performance you need to write the code, the less understandable it becomes. And that's because you're really having to talk much more the language of the computer because you're trying to align to how the computer works than writing code that maybe is less efficient but is human understandable. And so there are some complexities that arise in our code base that are fairly unique. And so I'd been... Um, spending uh, a bit of time thinking about how can how can we accelerate and improve some stuff here. So I've called it gardening, where we said for two months, starting at the beginning of this month and going to 1st of December, we're not going to do any work in the engineering team except for support. So if a customer has an issue, we'll fix it. But largely self-directed as a group, um, they have these two months to tidy up the shop. And so they're doing things like completing our migration to .NET 6. We'll then bump it to 8 later this year. And that's because we've been moving to .NET Core for many years, but we have almost 300 projects as part of the solution. Okay. We, you know, yeah. this could go on for another blooming decade. You know, and so it's like, well, let's get that resolved. Let's, let's take all of these things that we all know are an annoyance, you know, or slow us down. So we want to basically get back to being absolutely top of our game around that. Um, and so 
a few people have sort of pinged me and gone like, wow, that's a really bold move to say, hey, your whole engineering team for two months, you know, and sure, if I tot up the costs, it's it's a pretty high cost. Um, but I'm working on the belief that it's an investment that over the next 12 months will easily repay itself in the increased velocity of our delivery. Um, I've also had a bunch of people saying, you know, what are the metrics? You know, like, how did you know you're <laughs> going to do this? And I was like, well, you know, it's not going to be a very comforting answer, but you know, at this point, I've got 30 years of building software experience. It's like I know problems when I see them. Yeah, uh, I know yeah. what the outcome is going to be. I, I don't need somebody to come and give me a report on why they should do this. Um, and what's been really cool, though, is it's also, uh, in my view, it's really upping the ownership of the code base to the team. Now, obviously, they're the only people working on it anyway, but this gives the opportunity to say, no, we really do own this. And if we're not able to sort of ship as quickly as we'd like, now keep in mind, we still deploy to prod five to 10 times a day. Mm. I want to go faster, you know. Um, but that sense that, oh, finally, we can go and do this stuff we've wanted to do. And we have this great guy at work. He, uh, he actually is the owner of the System Improvements Register every little problem that he wishes we could kind of buff out. And I've said, look, we're not going to get to everything in two months, but if we can get a few of these large boulders out of the way and, yeah. and smooth down, we're going to go go quicker. Um, and so that's just been awesome to see. Um, and I'll report back on LinkedIn with how we actually go. We have got some measures, so I should be able to report some hard numbers at the end to say, mm -hmm. hey, this was the pre-state, this was the post-state. But yeah, I'm just really excited to to see how it goes. I'm plus side is I'm up here in Auckland for the day, so I was like, let's see, let's see what's happened today. I, I'm I always get excited going back um, and and having a look. It's quite funny. We have a well, the guy in Taiwan, uh, so he he joined, and uh, about six months in, I made this comment on a pull request, and he's like, wait, you go and check my pull requests. And I was like. Well, yeah, but not from a like critical eye of like trying to judge you. Like I literally just like it in the evening, you know, go and have a look at what's the code that we that we, we shipped today yeah, and what did cool. we do. And I love cool. that. So like I say, I live at the intersection of business and engineering and I love both immensely and I just can't imagine not doing that. So um, I just, yeah, overall really enjoy everything we're doing. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, yeah, a real uh, pleasure to have you on the New Zealand Tech Podcast, JD. So uh, thanks for coming in. Um, anything else you want to mention? Maybe if you, you know, you're doing any hiring or you know anything else that might be relevant to to our audience before we wrap up. Yep. Um, so we we are at the moment just doing that intern hiring stuff at the moment. So if you might technically be a bit late today, but if you are uh, an intern looking for a summer type of gig, if you're a student, particularly if you're you know, really into hardcore performance engineering, um, by all means, reach out um, around that. Uh, at the moment, most of any sort of additional hiring is probably overseas at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, and just yeah, hit me up on Twitter. I love to chat with like-minded people. I, I really want to see us grow this country and build more more great products and businesses here. So Anybody wants to talk about that, I'm I'm here to talk about it. Right on. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again for, for joining us. Uh, and, of course, thank you to our show partners, uh, Gorilla Technology, HP Spark 2 Degrees, and 1NZ for their support of the New Zealand Tech Podcast and, of course, the, the broader tech and innovation ecosystems here in New Zealand. Uh, if you've been listening or watching our, uh, our one of our live streams, uh, then do make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast on whatever channel that uh, that you listen to audio on, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts or whatnot. 
Uh, and of course, if you're listening to the audio, do look out for us on, on wherever you watch our video. We do tend to live stream most Tuesday afternoons. We are on YouTube, uh, X, Facebook, and probably actually the biggest audience uh, at times will be on LinkedIn. Uh, to get the LinkedIn feed, just uh, follow myself, Paul Spain. So thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, thanks JD. Cheers. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.